This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Louisa Ermolino, sitting in for Rose Fox. I'm the Reviews Director at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Jennifer Sr. about her exploration of parenting issues in All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. Then PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers will talk about the three big awards in kids' books, The Newberry, Prince, and Caldecott. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, I'm just going to jump in on the nonfiction list. So, we've got Travis Stork's The Doctor's Diet. It's uh, moved up from number 14 to number 3. And this is from Bird Street Books. It's a small uh, small press. And uh, this is, I think, still going along the, uh, the lines of, of uh, post-New Year's. This is when all the diet books and health books have come out. And we always like authority. Yes. But, yeah. You know, we right. trust that a doctor's diet will be something that's uh, correct and efficient right. and not a fad. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Very true. And I, I think uh, the, the the book we had that like uh, one of my favorites on here is uh, Scott Stossel's My Age of Anxiety. Uh, we had him on the show two weeks ago, uh, and it went from in those last two weeks uh, from thirty nine to eighteen, published by Knopf, and that's been getting a lot of press everywhere. And and that's uh, and then we also have uh, Crystal Payne debuting at number sixteen. This is a Thomas Nelson book. Say goodbye to survival mode. Uh, and it's kind of a self help book, still going along the same same lines. So in fiction, how's the fiction list looking, Louisa? Well, Armistead Maupin's The Days of Anna Madrigal debuts at number eleven. That's Harper, and it's sort of the wrap up of the Tales of the City, set in San Francisco. Mm. The series of novels that have a huge fan base. So yeah. people will be sorry to see it go, but right. It had a great run, and this is uh, a really nice wrap-up. And then there's Sarah Addison Allen's Lost Lake, which debuts at number nine. And uh, it's kind of a romance, women's fiction-type title set in Georgia. And Sarah Addison Allen has lots of fans, so they'll be happy that there's a new one out there. Yeah, and I think a lot of her novels are set in the South, somewhere in the South, so she has that kind of, uh, uh, that, that, that take on her within her novels. Yes, and it's, the South is a great place for fiction, we yes, all know that. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and then there's um, Nancy Horan's Under the Wide and Starry Sky, Valentine. Hits at number 12, and Charles Todd's Hunting Shadows, published by Morrow, is at 23. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Well, it's nice to see a lot of... Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing just a few books, a few new titles on the list, but it's nice to see uh, some changes. So uh, we'll see what February brings us. Yes. Bad weather, lots of time to sit in and read. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm Louisa Romolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jennifer Sr. will shed light on the issues of today's parents' tackling. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. I'm Louisa Ermolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Jennifer Sr. on the line. She's the author of All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenting. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with the title. What is the joy, and why are parents not having fun? (laughs) The joy is probably the more obvious part, right? I mean, we all know what the kind of unrivaled pleasures are of parenting and what the kind of transcendent meaning-making aspects are of parenting. I mean, for many of us, um, whether you're religious or not, this is as close an experience as you will have to awe um, or, you know, to having something that is awesome in the old-fashioned sense, not the teenage sense. Um, in terms of the no-fun part, um, what's interesting is that there's very there's a very robust body of social science that seems to suggest that uh, kids do not improve parents' happiness and in some cases might even compromise it. And my question was why, you know, and uh, what, you know, this book tries to do is look at the reasons for that. And I think in a nutshell, one can say that kids are not the problem. It's how we parent. It's something about parenting right now, this moment in time, that is particularly problematic. And uh, so what has complicated parenting in today's world? I think that there are a number of things, but I think the most important thing to bear in mind is that um, parents today are in the middle of a huge historic transition um, about what they, uh, concerning their role. Their roles are no longer the same, and we don't actually recognize that. We don't actually understand. We're living this out, and we're so close to it that we don't actually see something that's in progress. There, before the Second World War, kids worked, and a parent's sole job, essentially, was to shelter them and to close them and to give them moral instruction, right? That was, so we had a job, and it was to do that, and their job was to kick into the family economy. Um, during the progressive era, this obviously started to change. There were laws that sort of banned child labor, and this was all good. No one is, like, kind of pining for the Dickensian days of children back in mines and, and factories and mills. But what's interesting is that since then, the parent's job has become somewhat more elusive. Our sole job now is to nurture our kids, and it's to nurture them for a future that we cannot figure out, and it's also to shore up our children's self-esteem. Um, the words that one sociologist used, and I love this, is that the child became uh, economically useless but emotionally priceless. And if you have an emotionally priceless person on your hands and your only job is to make them feel, you know, happy and perfect and to prepare them in whatever way that you can for the world facing them, those are two very elusive and very difficult jobs. And I think parents spend many, many, many hours trying many, many, many different things to try and achieve those goals with absolutely no idea whether or not what they're doing is working. Jennifer, do you think that um, aside from outright abuse and neglect, that a child has a personality from day one? Well, that's very interesting. You know, this does not speak to my body of expertise, though, of course, there have been tons of books written about how much um, 
of our own nurturing is futile, (laughs) whether or not kids kind of are who they are, and we can make maybe a 10% difference either way, you know, that we can, that that probably it's good to avoid harming them, but how much we can actually change them is up for dispute, and they use lots of things like twin studies to show that. I can certainly say that I think that my son and most people will tell you that their children are born with distinct personalities, and that they know their children pretty well, you know, from the moment that they're born, Um, and I think if you're kind of indirectly speaking to the question of how much of all of this scheduling and all of this attempts to make them happy and all of this attempts to cultivate who they are is futile, there's a very good argument to be made for like the idea that maybe we should relax and try hard not to overschedule them, uh, you know, and that like they will become who they become in spite of our efforts. Like I think that there is certainly a healthy way to think about children that involves that. I think more to the point that this idea that we have that we are now in charge of our children's self-esteem and making them happy and making them self-confident that that might be like a very unreasonable thing to ask of a parent and that that might be a very unreasonable thing to ask of a child there's a lot to be said for you know correcting that uh, some children will never be happy and the best that you can do they won't they they were born the way they were <laughs> And, you know, and, and it is unfair to try and make them happy. It's unfair to them. And it's really unfair to the parents. And you have to just say that the most a parent might be able to do is create conditions where happiness is a byproduct, right? Where you're, you're creating a situation where you might isolate something that a child likes to do and you'll give them a lot, you know, a chance to do it or you'll give them a chance to be productive. You'll give them a chance to be moral. You'll give them a chance to be helpful. And those are all good things. And, out, and byproducts of all those things can be happiness or at least a feeling of pride and accomplishment in a child. But to explicitly set out with the idea of making your kid happy, I mean, I don't even, you know, no less than Benjamin Spock actually said that this was not a particularly um, concrete goal for 20th century parents. And he was the guru, right? I mean, he dominated child rearing in the mid-20th century for how many years? You know, and he thought this was kind of a far-fetched and elusive goal for American parents. So finding a balance, let's say, between the Betty Draper and the so-called helicopter parenting style today, how, how does one find either joy or fun? And what is joy or fun in either style of parenting? <laughs> well, joy is, is an easy one because that's connection. I mean, and in some ways, it's, 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 um, it's such a magnificent powerful emotion that it's almost difficult to tolerate. You know, I, I always think of Christopher Hitchens' line about this. Uh, I do not think of Christopher Hitchens as being a sentimental man. I mean, Lord knows he really wasn't. But he said in his memoir that having a child is like having your heart racing around in somebody else's body. So I think that the joy is a very easy thing to find. You know, you are a hostage to fortune once you have a child. You know, they hold the keys to your heart. And that is a powerful, meaningful, you know, majestic thing to have to the point that it might hurt and almost be too much to tolerate. It's almost easier to tolerate sadness than to tolerate the kind of vulnerability of that kind of love. In terms of what, you know, how to find fun in this, you know, I think it is somewhere between that full saturation immersion experience where you are spending every second of the day with your kid and being Betty Draper where you're just kind of like sticking them in a box. Um, I think that figuring out ways to um, be present with them 
to not let your work life interfere, you know, because otherwise you feel like you're multitasking, you are answering emails while playing with your kids. That can interfere with the enjoyment of being with your kid. So maybe one way to do that is to be wholly absorbed in their worlds. Another is to remember that if your kid is small, they don't have a prefrontal cortex, which means that they live in the permanent present. So it's easier for you to join them. You should probably not think too much, too hard about planning and directing a schedule. You know, it's important to be very relaxed about their sense of time, which is right now. <laughs> you know, you have to join them right now. So you yourself are a parent, and you've interviewed other parents. Talk about your own parent, and you talk about your own parenting style. But how does that mesh with those, with that of those you interviewed? I know I have one kid who's six, and I've got stepkids who are fully grown. They're 20 and 24. And, you know, I don't actually talk about my parenting style in my book. I talk only about other parents. I, I establish in the beginning that I'm a parent because I want everyone to understand that I have a kid. But that's essentially all I do. I just say that I'm a mother. I think at one point I do cop to the fact that I, like everyone else, want my kid to be happy. But I then go on to point out that this is probably a false god and a very crazy-making goal. Um I think, you know, I saw a broad range of parents. I mean, and they had like a very wide variety of kind of concerns and anxieties that truly depended on the ages of their children. I organized the book chronologically so that you were looking first at the effects of kids on their on their parents when the kids were young, you know, um, how the transition to parenthood affected, you know, their moms and dads. And then I look at how they affected them in the middle years, you know, when the kids are sort of let's say 6 to 12, kind of in elementary school, and then how kids affect their parents, you know, when they're in, um, adole when they're adolescents. Um, and it's different at every stage of the way. I mean, they just have distinct, you know, imprints on their parents at every stage. What are the differences in issues between moms and dads? Uh, moms experience time very differently. That's one of the big, big, big ones. Um, Mothers do about twice as much childcare and twice as much work around the house. Um, men work more hours, more paid hours. So it's a wash in terms of like, it's about equal in terms of like, you know, mo moms and dads both do the same amount of work. Moms do more unpaid work, dads do more paid work. Um, unfortunately, when moms and dads are home together, moms are doing more work because, you know, um, that's their, that's kind of the way things are distributed at the moment. What that means is that moms, when they are home, are doing a lot more of the deadline-sensitive work. They are doing more multitasking, whereas men, when they are at home, are more likely to be monotasking. <laughs> they are literally doing only one thing at a time, whereas when they're at work, they're doing many things at a time. Um, and because of this, Women experience home kind of as a video game with, like, flying debris coming at them. Um, and it's not necessarily, like, a decompressing environment. It's not a haven for them. They've got this running shot clock in their head. Like, I've got to get dinner on the table by 6. I've got to get my kids doing their homework by 7.30. I've got to get them into bed and get the bath running and all these things. Um, and I, this is not just, like, me capitulating to cliches. This is, like, borne out in lots of data, you know, pulled from the... Um, American Time Use Survey, and every mom I spoke to would say, you know, that to me, between the hours of five and nine are the hours that, like, I just got to get through them. I just, I'm like a 
in, an infantryman. I just got to must you know power through them, and they are different from father's time, which is experienced as less fractured. They also are responsible for less deadline-oriented stuff around the house. You know, they're more inclined to be in charge of like yard work, which you can kind of you can do your own hours on that. Um, Women are also the disciplinarians in the house. This, again, is borne out by time use surveys. I'm sorry, not by time use surveys, by um, big kind of sociological surveys that have been done over the course of years. They're the ones who regulate screen time. They're the ones who say who you should and shouldn't be friends with. It becomes a huge source of adolescent attention once the kids are adolescents. Um, and it's surprising. You would think that fathers would be the disciplinarians in the home, and it's not. It winds up being moms, and that to me was very surprising, that they are the you know whistleblowers. Um, and you know, moms talk a lot about that. You know, why are they the bad cops? Why does my husband get to be the fun one who serves yogurt and peanut butter for dinner? So, in wrapping up, Jennifer, do parents ever have fun parenting? Oh yeah, all the time. Sure. It's just that there's a lot of drudgery and, and stress associated with parenting. You know, the problem with a lot of the surveys that measure this stuff is that, you know, moment to moment, there's a lot of stress associated with parenting. But when it's fun, it's really, really fun. It could be magically fun. The problem is that you still rate it a five, right? You rate, you know, on these surveys, it tends to be tell me how things are on a scale of one to five. So... You know, an experience at the five might in fact be a ten if you're a parent, but the most you can rate it on any scale is a five, so no one can see the difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, think about you know the kind of ridiculous questions that your children ask that are like akin to a philosopher's question. You know, like what is water? A father was telling me about a kid asking him that. That's the greatest. What is water? You never get a chance to think about that question when you're not a parent. You know, and it's like crazily luxurious to think about that. You know, um, having your kid look at you and say that when they were born, they're so glad that it was you who was their dad or mom. You know, when do you get to hear that? That's just spectacular. You know, um, there's nothing like looking at your kid when they come down dressed for the prom. I mean, they're beautiful. They're standing at your height. They're gesticulating with your gestures. And they're looking at you eye to eye. And you did it. You made this beautiful person who's going to the prom. You know? I mean, of course there are moments of, like, fun and transcendence. And helping that girl prepare for the prom is probably a gas, you know? Well, we've been talking with Jennifer Sr. You can find her book, All Joy and No Fun, in stores right now. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Louise Ermolino, filling in for Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Book Review Editor John Sellers tells us about this season's big awards for children's books, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Louisa Ermolino, filling in for Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, joining us again is PW Children's Book Reviews editor John Sellers to give us a roundup of uh, the three, if not more, big book awards uh, this season for children's books. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. So this is it, a big season of, of awards. And, and, and uh, tell us about the awards, and, and do they all happen this time of year? This time of year is the ALA, uh, which is the American Library Association's um, 
sort of annual midwinter meeting, and that's when these these big awards get announced. Um, these aren't the only awards in the children's book world. There's, of course, um, the National Book Award back in the fall has um, award for young people's literature as well, and there's some other you know, awards with varying levels of prominence, especially internationally. But in terms of the U.S., um, these ALA uh, Youth Media Awards really are kind of the the top ones. These are ones that have been around the longest. We have, you know, the Caldecott Medal, the Newberry Medal. These are awards that have been around since, you know, the early part of the, of the 20th century. And so it, it, it's a big deal. So you were just out at ALA or? Uh... You know, I, I didn't I didn't go this year, but uh, the nice thing about these awards is that they, um, they, 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 brought, they, they broadcast them live online. So you've really got a whole, you've got the entire um, children's book community around the country, but even around the world, folks who can't make it to the meeting um, itself can can tune in, and there's just an incredible, incredible kind of sense of community and sort of excitement. I mean, watching it all unfold on Twitter and watching the live stream, you know, we were I was tuned in, um, and you know, folks everywhere were, and just everyone is tweeting the answers. It, it feels so celebratory. Not to mention the fact that you can you know listen in and hear the reactions of the librarians who are in attendance at the midwinter meeting um, live as it happens. So it's a great sort of event in the children's book world. And, you know, there's already a natural sense of community in, in, among in children's books and librarians and um, booksellers. But an event like this, especially when it's so widely uh, available to participate, uh, it just really cements that. And so, so let's go down the list. Uh, let's maybe uh, chronologically uh, uh, tell us about the various awards, their significance, and maybe any surprises or the big winners. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's really dozens of awards um, in all sorts of different categories that that were announced. Um, they they always sort of start with you know what I would I guess say the smaller ones, but even to be you know receiving any of those quote unquote smaller awards are still huge huge honors. But you've got everything from the Batchelder Award, which is uh, for our best work in translation, to the Cybert Award, which uh, is for a distinguished sort of nonfictional or information book. Um, you've got the Credit at Scott King Awards, which honor authors and illustrators um, of African-American uh, background, uh, the, the Morris Award, which is for, for debut novelists, um, and many, many more beyond that. So th- there's, a, there's a real wide spectrum of folks getting awards and dozens and dozens of books, you know, getting singled out. Um, but the, the big three, the ones that I would you know, probably talk about with you guys today, would be uh, the Caldecott Medal, uh, the Newberry Medal, and the Prince. Uh, the Prince is the newest of all these. It, it really, it's only, um, you know, uh, maybe a dozen years old or so. Um, and that goes to a, uh, that honors um, writing for young adults. So I feel like it's sort of um, nods to the, the sort of tremendous growth we've seen in the young adult uh, market in the last few years. Um, so, so this year, uh, the Prince went to a book called Midwinter Blood by... Um, uh, sorry, but by Marcus Sedgwick, and it was one of my favorites from the past year, so I was happy to see it win. You, you mentioned uh, surprises earlier. I'm not sure how many surprises there were on the list. Um, I'm, I'm terrible about, about guessing these sort of things, but uh, um, I was certainly happy to see that one win. Um, I guess uh, there was one quick uh, or one small surprise, I guess, in the in the Prince category. They, they give four honors along with the winner. Um, and that went to Eleanor Park, which had a, a huge year last year, um, a book called The Kingdom of Little Wounds, uh, another book called Maggot Moon, and the fourth was a book called Navigating Early by Claire Vandenpool, Vandenpool who's a uh, former Newbury medalist herself. Um, and I think folks were a little surprised about Navigating Early because it's almost a little bit more of a middle-grade book than YA, but um, in general, all those books were 
uh, very well received this past year. So uh, no real surprises there necessarily. Is there a theme of the supernatural in these books? Um, a little bit. Um, it, it's interesting with that. With that, with the with the one with the winner and the honors this year, it was actually kind of a mix. Uh, Midwinter Blood definitely has a sort of supernatural aspect. It, it's really seven interconnected stories um, set on this Nordic island. And they start in, in the future, and with each story, go farther and farther back into ancient history, really. And it, um, there's two characters that seem to keep resurfacing in each of the stories, and their names are sort of variations on the names Eric and Merle. And part of the, the puzzle of the book is figuring out, you know, who are these people and, and why do they keep somehow appearing? How are these characters connected? Um, anyway, it's a, it's a really beautiful, interesting uh, book in the way it sort of ties it all together, kind of uh, cyclically. Um, and with, among the, the honors that I just mentioned, I mean, you've got um, so, so a mix of realistic and uh, and more sort of supernatural. Um, so there's actually, you know, among all the awards this year, a real, I feel like a real diversity, a lot of sort of genre fiction, a lot of supernatural, a lot of realistic things, some historical, like, um, you know, if, if I was moving on to talk about some of the other awards, if we talk about the Caldecott, the winner this year, um, it was a book called Lo- Locomotive um, by Brian Sloka, and this was his first uh, Caldecott medal. And this is a, a really wonderful um, picture book about uh, the Transcontinental Railroad that follows a family uh, from the Midwest out to California, and um, but really lavishly and detail, uh, detailed in, in terms of his illustrations, but also a lot of information about the way that um, the locomotives uh, really sort of connected the country and, and, and opened it up to a new generation. Um, I actually had to speak with him on Monday um, very quickly after the awards were announced. It was, I think, only 45 minutes after the announced uh, that he'd won the Caldecott, but um, I was on the phone with him for PW, uh, giving him a quick interview about his initial reactions, and it, it felt a little invasive, but it was still uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> now, do these authors um, collect these medals? Are there a lot of repeat winners? Um, I wouldn't say there's a lot of repeat winners, but in fact, uh, the the winner of the Newberry this year, Katie Camillo, this is her second. She she won she won uh, back in uh, 2004, so 10 years ago, she won the Newberry as well for the Tale of Despero, which you may have heard of that became a movie a few years ago. Um, and she also won a uh, Newbery Honor in 2001 for her very first book, which was Because of Winn-Dixie, uh, which also became a movie. And she's actually just been re- uh, recently um, appointed the, the fourth uh, National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, which is a two-year uh, term. So she's actually having a, <laughs> been a pretty big year so far. John, any uh, last books that you want to uh, tell us about? Well, as far as, uh, you know, Monday's words go, again, it was, a, it was lovely, you know, a very nice, diverse list. I think in general there wasn't much um, griping or uh, complaints after the fact. People seem to have been pretty pleased with the books that uh, were chosen this year. Uh, one interesting thing I mentioned earlier, the uh, the Batchelder Award, um, which is for works in translation, and um, one publisher, a small a Brooklyn-based publisher called Enchanted Lion, um, practically swept the entire awards uh, they, they took home the, the, the medal for a book called uh, Mr. Orange, but they also took home two of the, of, of the three honors as well. Um, and so they've, I think they're sort of, uh, this is a publisher also that does very well with things like the, um, the New York Times Best Illustrated, which is another um, honor for children's book art that usually comes out in the fall. And I think, you know, for a very small publisher, they're just uh, showing that they've got a really a knack for finding um, books uh, from around the world that, are, that will really... Uh, appeal to an American audience and, uh, you know, bring them over here uh, so that we can enjoy them too. Well, John, thank you so much. Always, always great to have you on the show. 
No problem. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. I'm Louisa Ermolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes. Available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site out every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 